Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're here with Brett Wigdortz, who in 2002 left his job at McKinsey to become Chief Executive Officer of Teach First. Brett, over the phone, a big warm welcome to the Harvard EdCast. Thank you. Brett, here across the pond, many people may not know a whole lot about ed reform movements in England. Why don't you just bring us up to speed on education in England and how you came about to helping over there? Sure. Um, well, I mean, England has um, some similar situations to the United States. One of the um, underlying difficulties in England is that there's a huge correlation between um, a parent's income and the educational success of their children. Um, so in England, you, you have a, a system where you have some amazing schools, some of the best schools um, in the world, and then um, some very, very uh, substandard schools, which for the most part have children from the poorer economic backgrounds. I was um, a management consultant who um, was in England just for a few months, and I was put on a study looking at how businesses could help education in London. And uh, that project um, resulted in the idea that really um, what schools in the more challenged areas needed were um, what the problem was that a shortage of leadership and they needed excellent teaching, they needed good school leaders, um, they needed you know the people who would help improve um, the situation there. And that led me to write a business plan for Teach First, which um, then led me to lead McKinsey in 2002 to start it. Brett, can you tell us a little bit about what what is the what goes on in your mind from just doing something that's part of your consultancy gig with McKinsey to a business plan to actually leaving that and trying to start a whole brand new organization? Uh, yeah, it was a pretty pretty um, silly idea at the time because um, I mean I'd only been in England a few months. I had no educational background really, um, and I was a relatively junior consultant actually on this project. Um, and I think what went through my head was. Um, I had been on a few other projects where I felt working for banks, a whole other sector, that we had come up with some good ideas which had never been followed through. And my belief was this was an idea that would really work in England. Um, I was convinced that it would make a real impact, that this is what the country needed. And I was worried no one was really uh, following it through. So my original idea was to take a six-month leave of absence, write a longer business plan, find someone who is more qualified than me to get it going, and then uh, go back to McKinsey uh, after those six months. But then uh, after getting into it for a few months, I managed to get it started. Um, I uh, got the support uh, to get it going, and I interviewed people to potentially be CEO of it, and I had trouble finding anyone who had the passion or, or uh, commitment that I was looking for. And I just thought, you know, this is too exciting, um, and this is going to be too big and, and make too big of a difference. So um, I left for good. Brett, a lot of people in America obviously know about Teach for America, and some people have even asked, you know, what's Teach First? Oh, it's the Teach for America in England. Is that true? Is it? What are the biggest differences? Was there inspiration from Wendy Kopp, and how do they compare? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think of us as our own, you know, we're our own independent organization. Um, we're not affiliated with Teach for America, and um, we, um, you know, have come it our own way. I think when... I was originally writing the business plan. I, I didn't even know about Teach for America, actually, because um, when I went to university, they weren't recruiting at my university. And uh, I, at that point, I had been out of the country for a few years. I'd been in Asia for a while. So so I actually hadn't heard of it. Um, once I started writing the business plan, I did hear of it, and I, I reached out, and I um, had a phone conversation with Wendy 
um, and uh, one of their board members. Um, but I think that was, it was just seen as that as, that was like an interesting American model, but we were sort of building our own model in Britain. Um, I think certain things are similar to Teach for America. Um, so some of the core ideas of the program, which revolve around the idea that you want to recruit um, really the best graduates in your society. You want to have them uh, teach and be successful teachers uh, for two years in, in schools in challenging circumstances, and you want to build a big alumni movement. Um, I think, you know, those things are somehow core. I think how we do it is, is somewhat different from Teach for America. Um, it's hard for me to, you know, think exactly the differences because I, I'm not necessarily an expert on Teach for America. But what I would say, I mean, some of the differences probably are around, um, you know, we have a very explicit focus on leadership. That That's a really core part of our entire organization. So um, we um, call our two years the Leadership Development Program. And we see this as a problem that can only be solved through leadership. Our goal is to help our um, participants during their two years become great leaders who can lead their pupils to success. You know, we believe a classroom teacher, that, that is leadership. Um, and uh, I think that's probably a slight difference from the training. Some of our um, collaborative partnerships are a bit different. So all of our teachers get qualified as a teacher. Um, we partner with a lot of the big schools of education in the country who um, contribute uh, to our summer training and, and other parts of our training. We also collaborate with lots of businesses, including um, business schools. So our teachers do um, a mini MBA. Um, they get a summer internship. They get a business coach. Um, and uh, I think probably another slight difference is just how we work with our alumni. At Teach First, um, if you successfully complete the program, you become a Teach First ambassador. So it's not not everyone becomes an ambassador. Some people don't don't make it. Uh, and to become an ambassador, you not only have to you know finish the two years, but you have to complete the leadership program and, and you have to meet other requirements. Once you become an ambassador of Teach First, the idea is you're basically making commitment for the rest of your career that you're going to continue to address educational disadvantage. And we're going to make a commitment to you that um, we're going to help you do that. And we do that in six different ways. Uh, the biggest way is something called Teach On. So we continue to support our ambassadors who stay in teaching. And uh, about well, two-thirds of our people in the last few years have stayed in teaching a third year. More than half of all of our ambassadors over eight, nine years now are still in teaching. And for them, we're supporting them to become heads of schools and um, successful classroom teachers. We work with them. And then those who leave teaching, we work with them to become school board members, policymakers, um, mentors. We run a mentoring scheme for children from low-income communities. Um, and also other ways to support the program. Yeah, I think it's really interesting just how many do stay in the field and, and how that, and rather than being alumni, they're ambassadors. And I think that's a really interesting facet. Now tell me a little bit about Teach for All and how that's been sort of growing, not just on a, on a national standpoint between America and England, but globally. Yeah, so I mean, I think from almost the moment we got started, we've been approached by um, entrepreneurs in other countries who wanted to start programs similar to Teach First. Um, I know Wendy at Teach for America has also been approached by people in other countries who want to start programs similar to Teach for America. Um, I don't think we ever, either us or Teach for America, ever saw this as a core competency of our programs. So um, we agreed a few years ago to jointly approach uh, McKinsey, and we co um, sponsored this study that McKinsey did, um, looking at how we should respond to this international interest. Um, so back in 2008 now, we uh, co-founded this organization, Teach for All, 
which is um, a network of entrepreneurs in countries around the world who want to start programs similar to Teach First or similar to Teach for America, which are around um, recruiting the top people in their country, getting them to teach for two years in challenging schools and um, in schools in challenging circumstances and, and building an alumni program. Um, and we're currently working with entrepreneurs in over 20 countries. But the idea is it's a network, um, not a franchise, so we don't say, you know, we want to go to a country, let's go there. Instead, we're approached by an entrepreneur from a certain country who comes to us, says, I want to start a program in this country, can you help? And then we try to help them and try to find ways that the entrepreneurs can um, help each other and also the teachers and the alumni of all the different programs can work together, which, which is really exciting. Now, Brett, in 2007, you won the United Kingdom Social Entrepreneur of the Year. Was that a big surprise to you? Um, yeah, it was really exciting. Um, I was nominated by one of our ambassadors who worked for Ernst & Young, um, and Ernst & Young was sponsoring that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I, didn't know, know, I didn't know that until, until that happened. But, yeah, that was exciting. I think, um, yeah, it was sort of something that showed the, the growth of the program, probably. Yeah, and tell us a little bit more about the growth. And it started just in London, and then it moved north. And what are your expansion plans? Um, so we started just in London, um, and the first year we had about 200 teachers on the program. Um, Britain is about a fifth the size of American population, so um, so that was quite a large beginning. This year we're going to have about 750 teachers join, um, and we have six regions. Um, including the East-West Midlands, Northwest, Northeast, um, and Yorkshire. So we're, we're in most areas of England now. Um, by next year, we're going to have 1,000 people join the program. And at that point, we'll, we'll actually be the largest recruiter of graduates in the country. Um, we're already the largest recruiter from Oxford and Cambridge and a number of other universities. Um, and by next year, about half of all challenged schools or half of all schools in challenging circumstances will have a Teach First teacher or ambassador um, teaching in it. So it's really exciting. We're getting to a real national scale, and um, now we're hoping to deepen that impact in, in every school we're in. Those are pretty staggering uh, growth numbers in a, in a very positive way. Now, I know when TFA started in America, there were a lot of criticisms about the program. How has the country embraced Teach First in London and England, and uh, were there any challenges from its onset? I mean, overall, it's been pretty positive, I think. Um, I mean, when we started, there were a lot of people who didn't think it would be successful, um, I remember meeting the head of careers at, at a top university who said, you know, only four or five people from that university had gone to teach in a, in a school in challenging circumstances. This year, you know, there's a few hundred applying to teach first. Um, you know, people thought top graduates in Britain weren't interested in this sort of thing or making an impact or, you know, and that's all been proven false. Um, I mean, we have good relations with just about everyone in Britain. We have po very positive relations with all the teaching unions. Uh, you know, we partner with schools of education, and they're, they're a core part of our training. Um, we partner with schools. In the end, schools have to hire us. So it's basically the principal or the head teacher who um, makes the decision whether or not they want our teachers in the school. Um, so, I mean, broadly, we're, we have the support of all the political parties in Britain. Um, I, I think broadly people see it as a good thing, you know, the idea of getting the best um, people to be teaching in the schools with, with the um, biggest challenges, you know, it's a positive thing. All of our teachers get qualified, and um, the retention is, you know, not too different from other routes into teaching in England, so, so broadly seen pretty positively. Yeah, Brett, what's one thing America could learn from England in terms of education? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think with, 
you know, I think what's interesting is just we teach for all just every country teaching each other so many things. Like, uh, I mean, um, I, I just went to the Teach for India, and I'm seeing how much I learned from them that they're doing things with their parents of their kids and based on values and things that we're learning a ton from. Um, I mean, I think, I'm sure think what does England do really well? I think, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think the, the main thing, I guess, I, I think that's important is that the teachers really can work together. And um, I, I see there's a lot of examples of our teachers and Teach for America teachers learning from each other, which I think is good. I mean, on a systemic policy level, you know, probably one thing that's easier in England is there's only one school district, basically, in the whole country of England. Uh, you know, Scotland and Wales is different, but there's a um, Secretary of Education who I meet with, and he can make decisions for all of England. Um, and I know, you know, a huge situation in America is, is the huge complexity of uh, different districts, school, um, states, and uh, and towns, and uh, and that I'm sure makes it difficult to to make uh, you know any sort of national changes happen, um, which is a lot, a lot easier in England. Brett, last question. You you studied in Richmond, Virginia, and Hawaii, and now you're you're in England now as a very young CEO of a of a major charity. Is this the journey you've envisioned for yourself? No way. No, um, no I think I think if I ever envisioned this, it would have been mad. Um, I mean, it's it's just been a really um, really interesting journey, which which I've been really fortunate to to have some really exciting opportunities. I think. Um, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey and then went to University of Richmond and then got a job at the East-West Center in Hawaii, which, which was really exciting. Um, and I was a management consultant. And, and I just always think when, when I was a management consultant, I liked my job a lot. Um, and I did a lot of work on something called War for Talent um, for banks, working for banks and how they could attract the best talent. And uh, I think just serendipity brought me to this project in London um, and the ability to, to do this project. Um, and it's just been an amazing opportunity the last eight or nine years. I mean, I'm always, I always say, you know, I don't think I've had a day where I've gone to work over the last eight or nine years that I haven't enjoyed going to work or looked forward to going to work. Um, you know, I just think it's, we're doing really exciting things. It's just such an exciting issue to, to work on. So I'm really lucky to be there. Yeah, Brett, do you, we have a lot of people who are young social entrepreneurs who listen to our show. Do you have any advice for someone who's maybe was in a position like you were at McKinsey and wanted to start their own nonprofit? Well, how do you transition? Any advice from someone who did it successfully? Yeah, I mean, so I talked to some social entrepreneurs in England, and um, I think so many people have such great ideas, which is so exciting. Um, and sometimes the advice I give sounds almost very cliche, but I do think it's true that to be, a, I think you have to take risks as an entrepreneur. Um, I, I mean, I took a six-month unpaid leave of absence from McKinsey, which I did eat into my savings, um, you know, I, my career very easily could have gotten destroyed by it. Um, and I, I meet, like, so many entrepreneurs who aren't willing to take the risk for their ideas, and I think um, that, that's the first thing I'm always talking about. You know, in the end, you just, just jump in. Like, you have to take a risk sometimes to be successful. Um, and I think the other thing, you know, which, which I see so many social entrepreneurs or any entrepreneur have to go through um, sort of what we call, teach first, we call these valleys of death, which are um, just really difficult times. I think there's always a myth that anything that's successful was always destined to be successful, and people thought it would be successful at all times. And in our early days, you know, we went through a lot of difficult times where people didn't think we would work, people didn't want to support us because they didn't believe it, it would be successful. You know, I still have so many memories of months going by where I was worried I wouldn't be able to, you know, pay, check, pay um, my staff or things like that. Um, and I 
that that's really make it stronger. And I, I meet some social entrepreneurs who maybe stop when things get difficult. And I think, um, you know, it's always that Thomas Edison, I think, quote, you know, any, any success is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. I don't know if that's the exact quote, but I do think that's true. I see it so many times in different enterprises. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, last question, Brett. You're from New Jersey, but you're now living and doing much work in England. The question for you is Bruce Springsteen or the Beatles? I definitely Bruce, the boss. Definitely the boss. So there's no question on that one. Oh, good. We like to hear that stateside. Brett Wickdorf, thank you so much for appearing on the EdCast. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.